Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. The Old Testament book of Ezekiel and chapter number 48. Ezekiel and chapter number 48. As we continue to wind down this series of the Millennial Kingdom and explore a little bit more about what this thousand year reign of Christ is like, we took time to explain this morning that Jerusalem is going to be the capital. And part of the reason why it is going to be the capital of the Millennial Kingdom is because there's going to be a very special institute or structure that is going to be there within the Millennial Kingdom. And we're going to take some time to study them. Notice with me, if you don't mind, if you found your way to the book of Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, chapter number 48. And if you don't mind, in Ezekiel 48, we're going to look in verse number 30. Ezekiel chapter 48, starting at verse number 30, the word of God says this. And these are the going outs of the city on the north side, 4,500 measures. And the gates of the city shall be after the names of the tribe of Israel, three gates northward, one gate of Reuben, one gate of Judah, and one gate of Levi. And on the east side, 4,500, and three gates, one gate Joseph, one gate Benjamin, one gate of Dan. And on the south side, 4,500 measures, and three gates, one gate of Simeon, one gate of Issachar, one gate of Zebulun. And on the west side, 4,400, with their three gates, one gate of Gad, one gate of Aser, and one gate of Naphtali. And it was round about 18,000 measures, and the name of the city from that day shall be, The Lord is There. The Lord is there. And I love to make a study of the names of God. And here we see the, the name of God, Jehovah Shammah. Jehovah Shammah, for those of you who like spelling such things, Jehovah, J-E-H-O-V-A-H, Jehovah, and then Shammah, S-H-A-M-M-A, Jehovah Shammah, which means the Lord is there. And if you don't mind, let's go ahead and we'll preach a message dealing with the subject matter that's found in the book of Ezekiel about the Lord is there. And if you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. Thank you for the great privilege it is to be in your house and to be able to open up the scriptures and to be able to learn and discern these things for ourselves. I'm asking that you would just help us as we survey this, that we would be able to have a good understanding and be able to get a glimpse of what you've revealed in the future concerning this matter. And that we can also make an application for us today, that we have a desire to be close to you. We desire to have your presence and to be in your presence and help us to be mindful of the things that destroy the presence manifested with our own lives. Again, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Just help me to be able to teach in the way that you would have me to teach and that you would get victories tonight. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Good. 
We know that in the Bible there are two subject matters that are given more chapters, more passages devoted to those subjects than any other subjects in the Bible. The first one at the top of the list would be the tabernacle temple. The tabernacle and temple have more passages dedicated to it than any other subject in the Bible. The second subject is the millennial kingdom. And the millennial kingdom is number two on the list with more passages dedicated than any other subject except for the tabernacle and temple. And what we find in the book of Ezekiel in chapter, <laughs> chapters actually from 40 all the way up to 48, we have all of these chapters dedicated and brought up to the place where they, <clears throat> where they are talking about the millennial kingdom and the future temple. And so you have both subject matters that are lifted up, both subject matters that are now emphasized at the same time and that's probably something that's fairly important that God wants us to understand and to realize. Now, we understand <laughs> that from Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48, it takes a lot of detail and a lot of time to speak about Israel in the millennial kingdom. It talks about the temple. It talks about the resetting of worship. It talks about what the temple is going to be like, what's going to be there, what's not going to be there. It goes ahead and takes a lot of time to explain all this. Now, we understand that normally when you read the book of Ezekiel, you get to the last couple chapters and you see all the measures and all this stuff, and you probably do what most people do, and that is to say, I read it, but my eyes touched every word of the page, but I didn't process any information. I'm going to hurry up and get to the book of Daniel. At least I know some stories of Daniel that I could grab. Well, the good thing is, is that we want to try to make this easy. We want to try to give discernment and try to go through here. Now, instead of going through every verse line upon line, I want to survey these several chapters to kind of give an overview of what is being talked about within these chapters concerning the millennial kingdom temple and inside of the millennial kingdom. And so if you don't mind, let's take some time, and I may not hit every chapter, but I'm going to kind of survey a little bit about what this is going to be like. The very first thing I'd like to show you in chapters 41 and 42, what we see in those chapters is the rebuilding of the temple. That inside of Ezekiel chapter 41 and 42, we have the rebuilding of the temple. Now, if we're going to understand why this is so significant and why God places so much detail inside of the Millennial Kingdom temple, first of all, we have to understand the first temple. Now, oddly enough, the first temple is the only perfect structure in all of history. Think about that. What do you mean by that, that it's the only perfect structure? Well, the temple, or the tabernacle rather, the tabernacle was the only structure that was given full instructions to the very detail of how it was supposed to be built. And so God didn't do that with any other permanent or structure that was going to last for a while. We know that he gave details for the ark, but for a building, for a place of worship, it is the only perfect structure, meaning that the instructions came directly from God, and God is the one who placed it together. How big, all the little knobs, all the thing. If you go back and read the book of Exodus and see all the knobs and all the things and how it was supposed to be together, God went through a lot of detail to describe it. And why did he go through such detail? Because it's all a picture of Jesus. Jesus. 
that when you go back and study the temple or the tabernacle from the very beginning of the Old Testament, all of it is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ is. If you don't mind, let's quickly run through a, a quick overview of the Old Testament temple, the, found, uh, the ones with the instructions given to Moses. That when you first step into the court of the temple, the first piece of furniture you would come to, which would be... <coughs> The brazen altar. And inside of the brazen altar is where the sacrifices would be brought to. And so if I was a Hebrew person and I was coming to bring the sacrifices, this is where it would be presented. This is where my sacrifices would be brought. And of course, we know that this is a picture of Jesus Christ, that because of our sin, blood must be shed. And this is a visual picture for everyone to see that this is what my sins were like. That's why they went through a ritual that they would take the, the calf and they would lay their hand upon the, the animal as a picture that this is now carrying my sin. Now, notice I word, use the word picture. At no time did the blood of goats and calves ever take away sins. But this was a picture of what Jesus Christ was to do that he took our sins were now transferred and put on something else. And that thing had to have its blood shed in order to have our sins forgiven. Well, that's what Jesus did is that he took our sins upon his body and he died for your sins and for mine. He died to pay the wage that you and I owed God. And that was taken care of at the brazen altar. Now, beyond that, the rest of the congregation was not allowed past that point. Only the priests were allowed past that point. This was set aside for them. And what the priest would do after they would work with a brazen altar, which pictured salvation, what we had to do to have salvation, they would turn around and before they can go into the temple or tabernacle proper, the next piece of furniture they came to was the brazen, or sorry, the uh, brazen laver. And basically, in my mind, I pictured it as a big birdbath. It was a big basin that had water on it. And after working with those animals, their hands would get bloody, they would get dirty. And before they can go into the presence of God, they had to be clean. Now, salvation was pictured at the brazen altar, but here at the golden laver, what was pictured here is that even though we may be saved, we all need to wash ourselves. That's why the Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That even though you may be saved, guess what? You still need to take a bath. You still need to be clean. You still need to be washed. And so beyond the brazen, uh, the, the laver, they, now they would come into the, t uh, or, excuse me, the tabernacle proper. And inside of the tabernacle, it was divided into two sections. The first part of the tabernacle was called the holy place. And inside there were three pieces of furniture. Over on this side, you had the table of showbread. And in that piece, uh, they would have special bread that they would make and it would be dedicated unto the Lord and sanctified him. And of course, this is a picture of Jesus that Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Over on this side, you have the golden candlestick. And the golden candlestick, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. On the back part of the room, there was a table that had an altar of incense, basically sweet fragrances that would go up. And those sweet fragrances would be representative of the prayers. And we know that Jesus Christ is our intercessor, that he is praying for us. Now, beyond that table, there was a big veil that was about a hand's breadth thick. 
Meaning that we may have curtains today and they're just a couple uh, fractions of an inch thick. They're very small. But this veil was a curtain that was a hand's breadth thick. And this was to show that there was a separation for uh, God. That God was on the other side and that man could not approach God. He had to go beyond the veil. And the only person that was allowed to go beyond the veil was the high priest. And that was once a year and only with blood. And he would go and make the... the, um, excuse me, prayers for all of the nation at that time. And inside of the, excuse me, the Holy of Holies, and that's what that section was called, would be the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was the representation of the presence of God among the people, that the Lord was there. Now inside of the Ark of the Covenant, there was a couple interesting things. That inside of the Ark of the Covenant, there was the tables of law. That they had the actual Ten Commandments and the tables of law inside of the Ark of the Covenant. Inside of the Ark of the Covenant was Aaron's staff. You remember Aaron's staff? Remember when Korah and his bunch of um, friends got together and they challenged Moses and said, Who put you in charge? Why are you making all the rules? And so they said, All right, fine. Everyone take their staff and put it aside. And the one that God makes to bud... I mean, this is a staff. It's not longer connected to a tree. The one that God causes the bud, that's the one that God chose to be the high priest. And so God caused Aaron's rod to bud. And that was placed inside of the Ark of the Covenant to represent and to show that God had a choice. And God chose who was to lead and to follow. And so those were some of the things that was in the, the Old, Old Testament tabernacle. Now, in the book of Ezekiel, as you study those things and begin to study what God talks about in the rebuilding of the temple, we notice that in Ezekiel's temple, there is something missing from the Old Testament temple. From the, let's just call it to separate it, Ezekiel's temple and the Mosaic temple, meaning that the temple instructions were given to Moses. You know, there are some things that are different that are going to be in the millennial, or that it's not going to be in the millennial kingdom uh, temple. Here are some things that this new temple does not have. It does not have the Ark of the Covenant. Why wouldn't it have the Ark of the Covenant? Because the Ark of the Covenant represents the presence of God. You don't need something to represent the presence of God if you have the presence of God actually there. Jesus is going to be there. You don't need a picture of Jesus when you have Jesus there. For example, if I had a picture of my wife, the picture of my wife may be good to look at, but it's nowhere near like having the real thing there, right? And so in the Millennial Kingdom Temple, there is no Ark of the Covenant because we don't have to represent the presence of God. Something else that's not there is the Ark of the, or the Tables of Law. They will not be there because the Word of God is there. Aaron's staff will not be there. It's not necessary because Jesus is there, the chosen son. The mercy seat is not there. The high priest is not there. You know why you don't need a high priest? Because Jesus is the high priest. And he fulfills that position forever and ever and ever. Inside of the book of Ezekiel chapter 41 and 42. As it's describing the future temple. Something else that is not there is the veil. The veil has been rent away. We no longer have a blockage between us and God that we can approach God. We can enter boldly into his throne room of grace at any time that we have need. Isn't that a blessing? That the veil is not necessary. 
The Bible talks about that the table of showbread and the lampstand is not there. Why? Because they all picture Jesus Christ. You don't have to have a picture of Jesus Christ if Jesus is there with you. And so there are some major differences between the, the temple that is mentioned in the book of Ezekiel for the millennial kingdom and the original instructions that Moses was given by God. And most of it is because Jesus is there. You don't need a picture that Jesus is there. Now, what is the purpose of the millennial kingdom temple? What is this purpose? Well, first of all, it demonstrates God's holiness. It does demonstrate God's holiness. It is also a dwelling place for God's presence among his people. Meaning that, where is Jesus going to live at? He's going to live in the temple. That's where he's going to reside. That's where he's going to give his government. That's where he's going to give the laws. That's where he's going to administrate. Which brings me to the third thing. What is the purpose of the millennial temple? It demonstrates God's presence and holiness. It's the dwelling place for God's presence, Jesus, among the people. And then it is also the center of the divine government. So once again, where is the center of government? It's in Jerusalem. Where at in Jerusalem? The temple is going to be the center of God's government during the millennial kingdom. Now that's chapters 41 and 42. As we progress on through the book of Ezekiel, we now come to chapter 43. And in chapter 43, what we see is the return of the glory of God to the temple. The return of the glory of God to the temple. Now earlier in the book of Ezekiel, before the destruction of Jerusalem, God sends um, Ezekiel, by the way, he's living in Babylon, and God says, guess what, Ezekiel, let's go on a trip. And by the Holy Spirit, he picked him up and carried him spiritually to uh, Jerusalem. And so he was in Babylon, and then he's dragged to, to Jerusalem by the Holy Spirit. And God says, hey, take a look at this. And they watch the corruption they watch how awful the religious people are being inside of the house of God. That they took them to the basement, the back room. And they took them to the back room and watched as the priest were worshiping false gods in the back room. And then they would go back up and say, yes, we serve God to everyone else. But they were corrupt. And what happened is that Ezekiel watched in that time the presence of God being removed from the temple. And it was gone. That God's presence was removed. Because of the sins and the corruption of the people. What we find in chapter 43 of the book of Ezekiel. Is that heartbreaking time of the, the presence of God being removed. The presence of God now comes back into the temple. It now comes back and it's going to fulfill there. And it's going to rule and reign there for a thousand years. And that's detailed in chapter 43. In chapter 44 through 46, what we see is the worship of God resumes. The worship of God resumes. Now, what we see here is there's a couple intricacies. Is that the priesthood of the temple is reverted back to the sons of Zadok. Now, when we go through the life and ministry of David at the beginning of next year, we'll talk why this is so important. But basically, it's... Good to know that the priesthood is reverted back to the sons of Zadok. And that these sons are going to do the service of the temple. They're going to administrate the sacrifices, including the blood sacrifices. 
that during the millennial kingdom, the blood sacrifices will resume for that thousand years. Now, we'll notice that in that passage, it doesn't say anything about the high priest because Jesus Christ is the high priest. That all these sons of Zadok are going to administrate. They're going to be the ones doing the sacrifices and making sure things are done. But Jesus is the high priest. Now that brings us to a question that most Christians, because we don't relate to it as much, we're used to going to church. And inside of church, we don't have blood sacrifices, or at least none here. We don't have snakes. We don't do any of that stuff. We just have normal services, right? We sing, take an offering, we give a message, we keep it simple. But back in the millennial kingdom, there is no mention of church services. The worship is going to go back to almost like an Old Testament economy type of worship. And blood sacrifices are going to return. That the blood sacrifices are going to be administrative and, and given. And it's going to be commonplace. Now I know that's a little bit weird for us because it's something we don't practice. But it does bode the question... Why bring back the blood sacrifices? Why? Well, the answer is, is that first of all, the sacrifices never took away sins in the first place. That in the Old Testament, with the blood of bulls and goats, they never took away sin. And so we're not going back to a different way of salvation. That people in the Old Testament were saved the same way we are saved today. By believing by faith, or by grace through faith, that God made a promise and God is going to deliver his promise. We happen to know that promise name is Jesus. But the people in the Old Testament are saved, were saved the same way we are by faith through grace. By grace through faith. We are saved in that manner. The same thing's true during the Millennial Kingdom. In the Millennial Kingdom, how are people going to be saved? They're going to be saved by trusting on Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. That this, the the blood of goats and calves will not save then, and it never saved in the past. So we understand that this is a picture. And that's the second thing that we understand, is that first of all, the sacrifices, they never did save. But what are they there for? The sacrifices are a memorial. Sacrifices are a memorial. Now we have two memorials that we observe as New Testament Christians. The first memorial, even though we don't often think of it as a memorial, the first memorial is baptism. What is baptism a picture of? That Jesus died and was buried and that he rose again. We do this in remembrance that Jesus died for us. And think, now does baptism save? It does not. It is a picture of what Jesus did for us. It is a memorial. It is to be done in remembrance. The second memorial that we have as New Testament Christians is not only baptism, but we also have the obser observation of the Lord's Supper. That we know the Lord's Supper, the elements of the Lord's Supper, does not save. That when you're eating the little cracker, you are not eating the body of Jesus Christ. That when you're drinking the grape juice, you're not drinking the blood of Jesus Christ. We're not cannibals. Those are pictures that Jesus died, that his body was broken for us, that his blood was shed for us. And the Bible clearly says in, the, says in what Jesus said in the New Testament, as well as in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. That those are pictures 
Now, remember, in the millennial kingdom, there are going to be people that are born that are still going to need to be saved. And so how do you keep salvation before these people who are now saved? By having the blood sacrifices. By having that picture that, son, let me come. It's now time that we come to the millennial kingdom. So, son, come with me. And as we come to Jerusalem, they explain that what's going to happen is that this goat is going to die on your behalf. Now, it doesn't take away your sins, but it's a picture that because you sinned, something must bleed and die. And by the way, who's the lamb that took your price? That's him right there. That's Jesus. You see, it's done as a memorial. And because people are still going to need to be saved during that time of the millennial kingdom, it is a way to keep salvation before them as a memorial that as a picture that they can understand, because of your sin, something must bleed and die. And who is the one that bled and died? It is the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. And so first of all, the blood and goats, the blood never saved in the first place. Second of all, it's done as a memorial. But why else bring back the blood sacrifices? Well, we understand that they do not reinstitute the Mosaic law. That just because you're bringing back the blood sacrifices doesn't mean we go back to the Mosaic law. We're not going back to the old law that you have to keep this and keep this and keep that. Remember, the law was just our schoolmaster. It showed where we failed. That right beside the Ten Commandments, you could put in big boxcar letters right beside it, I need Jesus. That the Ten Commandments tell us that we have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That there are none righteous, no, not one. And so in the Millennial Kingdom, we're not going back to the Mosaic Law, but we are bringing back the blood sacrifices because it does give a way to picture Jesus Christ during that time. And that's what Ezekiel chapter 44 through 46 describes is the worship of God once again resumes. Then we come to chapter 47 through 48. Now I know that this is real exciting stuff and you're going, woohoo, I was glad, but don't worry, we're going to get to a point in just a second. But I do want to survey because we should know a little bit about what's going to be in the millennial kingdom. After all, many of you didn't even realize that we're bringing back blood sacrifices. Some of you didn't know that we're going to have a temple once again in the millennial kingdom. And we should answer the questions, why have that? Why is it so important? In Ezekiel chapter 47 and 48, what we see is that the land of God is restored. That in Ezekiel 47, 1 through 9, it speaks about the flowing river that's going to be flowing. And that how the land, once again, is going to be a land of milk and honey. It's going to be restored. In chapter 48, it divides out the land and the holy city and divides it out to all of the, the, um, to the tribes of Israel, once again, that they're going to get their land back. And God divides out the land and said, this is where Reuben lives. This is where Zebulun lives. This is where Issachar lives. And this is where the holy city, and this is the dimensions, and this is what belongs to. And we could see this dividing out, once again, as a fulfillment of the promises that God made to the Hebrew people that they would have the land. Then after this, the very last verse in Ezekiel 48, God takes time to announce Jehovah Shammah, that God is there. That we understand as we look forward to going to the millennial kingdom, in fact, as we look forward to going to heaven, think about heaven, no more sickness, no more uh, death, no more sorrow, no more death, no more tears. But what really makes heaven worth going there is that God is there. What makes the millennial kingdom worth going? 
Because God is there. And let me tell you something. You don't have to wait to go to heaven to be in God's presence. You don't have to wait to go to the millennial kingdom to have God's presence. You can have God's presence now. But we do know that there are some things that causes God's presence to be grieved. To cause it so that way it is not manifest nearby. And if you don't mind as we've given the Bible study part. Let's go to the preaching part. And let's describe what the Bible says. What grieves God's presence or his Holy Spirit? What is it that causes God's presence not to manifest or dwell with us? And with that, turn with me to the New Testament book of Ephesians. The New Testament book of Ephesians in Ephesians chapter number 4. The book of Ephesians in chapter number 4. Inside of the book of Ephesians chapter 4, we see one of the commandments dealing with, (coughs) excuse me, the Holy Spirit. We know that the Bible says, grieve not the Holy Spirit. The Bible says, resist not the Holy Spirit. The Bible talks about that we are not supposed to quench the Holy Spirit. Those are very severe terms that it says that we are able to do. Did you know that you can grieve the Holy Spirit? You can quench the Holy Spirit? Well, the Bible here in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, notice this saying that it says in verse 30, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. Now with it, it actually explains within this passage some things that actually grieve the Holy Spirit that will make it so God's presence is not manifest, is not with us, if you don't mind. You can have God's presence, but there are some things that grieve, that quench, that hurt the Holy Spirit. If you don't mind, let's take the book of Ephesians chapter number 4 here. And let's just walk down this passage a little bit. And let's see some things that the Bible says can grieve His precious Spirit. First of all, we see the idea that we need to put away lying. We need to put away lying. Notice with me in verse 25. Wherefore, put away lying. Speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Put away lying. You understand that lying is an awful thing, but we come from a nation of liars. America's full of liars. We are actually trained to lie. That we are taught to lie to not hurt someone's feelings. Now, there's an idea of being tactful. But the idea of lying, we're taught to lie. It's commonplace to lie. People don't think anything about giving a little white lie. But do you know that lying hurts God? It grieves His Holy Spirit. After all, it is one of God's Ten Commandments. God says, thou shall not lie. It doesn't give any extra information like, thou shall not lie unless your wife asks her, do these jeans make her look too fat? All right? You understand, God does not think little lies are cute. You may think they're cute, but God does not think they're cute. And the Bible actually goes a long way to speak about lying. One of the ideas of lying is the word guile. You know what the word guile means? It carries the idea of telling the truth, but telling it in such a way that you make yourself look better or you make someone else look worse. You know, we usually practice guile that when you get in trouble and you're getting ready to talk to your principal, your parents, or your boss, and you start planning out what you're going to tell them. And you try to work on the wording in such a way 
that makes you look better or makes someone else look worse. That's guile. It carries the idea of half-truths. That you say the whole truth, but maybe you leave something out or you emphasize something more. You understand, if God is against that type of lying where we're technically telling the truth, how much is he against a, a bold face lie? That lying is something the Bible says to put away lying. But speak every man truth. We need to be practiced telling the truth to someone. Now again, there's something with diplomacy. There's something with tactfulness that you shouldn't just go up and just cause trouble and say, well, I'm trying to be honest. No, there's an element of pride there. But you understand what I mean here, that we are a nation of liars and proud about our lying and that it is something that we have to watch ourselves because we know it's something that can grieve the Holy Spirit. Notice as it gives this list, put away lying, but also this, be angry and sin not. Be angry and sin not. Notice with me in verse number 26. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. You understand, as a Christian, you need to be in control of your anger. You know, there are some things that should make us angry. Did you know Jesus got angry? He went to the temple and saw the money changers and he got angry. But he never lost control. There are some things that should anger us. But how we respond in kind could be where the sin lies. The Bible says, be angry, but sin not. Then it gives the command, let not the sun go down on your wrath. That carries the idea that you take care of it. If you have a problem with someone, you take care of it as quickly as possible. You don't let it fester. Don't let it sit. Because that's how bitterness can form. And that talks about that at the end of the chapter. But it says, let be angry and sin not. Notice something else as it talking about this list and giving us the commandment not to grieve the Holy Spirit. We need to put away lying. We need to be angry and sin not. Notice this. Don't give any place to the devil. Don't give any place to the devil. Notice in verse 27. Neither give place to the devil. Now what do we mean by this? We know that Satan is looking for any kind of crack. He's looking for any kind of opening to step between. And he'll walk by a door a thousand times just to find it open slightly. What do we mean by this? Well, in the context, it talks about being angry and sin not. Have you ever had an odd against somebody? Let me tell you how Satan likes to work. That he likes for a misunderstanding to happen between you and your pastor. And if Satan could get in between that... He'll wedge it. You guys know what a wedge is. You put a wedge in there and it opens it up more and more. And so Satan will take a minor little misunderstanding and he'll blow it out of proportion. He'll fan the flames until you've got a problem with your pastor. Or you've got a problem with your husband. Or you've got a problem with your boss. Or you've got a problem with your parents. And because it wasn't taken care of immediately... Now it's got blown out of proportion. Now emotions are fanned. Now pride's involved. I, I'm not going to apologize until he apologizes first. That's what Satan is looking for. He's looking for some little place to disrupt a home. He's looking for some little place to disrupt a marriage. He's looking for some little place to disrupt a church. And the Bible says we're not to give place to the devil. We're not to be ignorant of Satan's devices. We have to understand that this hurts God when we're open the door to allow Satan to get into the crack and allow Satan to work 
to break up the relationships we have in our life. Notice if you don't mind. We could see that Satan lurks somewhere between anger and theft. Between tempter and theft. Notice with me in verse number 28 we see this. The Bible says steal no more. Steal no more. Do you know that stealing actually hurts God grieves his Holy Spirit. Now notice the context that it's talking about stealing in. Verse 28. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may give to him that needeth. Notice this. He actually equivalates stealing with work, or rather lack of work. Let's take this for example. Let's say that someone goes to work, but instead of doing their job, they're by the water cooler. Hey, they're technically at work, but they're gossiping the whole time. And they're spending more time talking to other people than working. They're stealing from their employer. Their employer paid them to do a certain job for a certain amount, and they're not getting the job done. That is theft. You are stealing time from your employer. The Bible actually says here that if you're not working, you're stealing. That's theft. You know, God created you to work. God created you to labor. God created you to get something accomplished. And if you're not working, if you're not accomplishing, if you're not moving forward, you're grieving the Holy Spirit. You're not advancing in your Christian life. God does equivalent over and over the idea of work and labor with pleasing him. Notice as it goes on. As it talks about. Uh, <coughs> ways of grieving the spirit. And what we're trying to warn. That we want God's presence in our life now. Notice in verse 29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. But to that which is good. To the use of edifying. That word edifying carries the idea of building up. That it may minister grace to the hearers. How we use our words. You understand that if your heart is right then your mouth will be right. That the things that come out of our mouth shows what's inside of our heart. We should be using our speech to build others up, not to tear them down. We should be using our speech to encourage them. Now, this does include constructive criticism. There are some times that we must tell someone that they're doing wrong in order to help them do what's right. That's part of doing it. It's how we do it. But we need to use our words in ways that are going to build people up. That are going to encourage them. Our world loves to use words to tear them down. You know that old nursery rhyme, sticks and stones could break my bones, but words can never hurt me. That's a big lie. Words do hurt. How we use our words. People may not remember the punch in the face, but they'll remember the words that you said forever. They'll hold it against you, or it could be that your words was what they needed to continue on, to move forward. That our words are necessary. And we can use our words incorrectly and it grieve God's Holy Spirit. It can hurt the Holy Spirit. It can make it so His presence is not manifest with us. I don't know about you, but I want God's presence to be here. I want Him to be in our church. You understand if these things are happening in our church, then God's presence is gone. If you have somebody that's gossiping against someone else and that's where the idea of corrupt communication it's it's related in the bible other things can you believe what pastor said that hurts it hurts the body of christ 
You know, if we get to the idea, can you believe what so-and-so did? That hurts. It grieves the spirit when we use it for gossiping. When we use it, if, if church people are gossiping about other people, it doesn't put a spirit of unity. It disrupts what God wants. If people are thieving, that's a problem. It causes issues within the church. If we're angry with someone... And not getting it settled. Let's say that Brother Swalheim got mad at Mr. Nick. And, and just. Rrr! Doesn't that disrupt the whole church? You bet it does. And it disrupts the presence of God. And what God wants to get accomplished here. You understand these are important. Because we want God's presence inside of your home. We got, want God's presence inside of our church. We want God's presence inside of our lives. But these things will grieve the Holy Spirit. And the Bible gives us this list to try to encourage us. Notice if you don't mind as it goes on. And it talks about grieving not the Holy Spirit. And then verse 31, it says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger. You know what bitterness is? It comes the idea of unforgiveness. That when we refuse to forgive someone, whether it's a slight that's real or imagined. You know there are some people who are mad at other people for things that aren't true. And there are some people who are mad at people for legitimate reasons. But you understand, bitterness comes from unforgiveness. And if we're going to be Christ-like, we must forgive. We must forgive. And probably the thing that's most associated with grieving the Holy Spirit here is unforgiveness. Do you have unforgiveness for someone or something? Is there an incident that keeps coming to your mind where you get... Rrr! You understand, we have to give that to the Lord. Because it will destroy us. Bitterness is a slow working poison that will destroy its own container. But all of these can grieve the Holy Spirit. When we're talking about the Millennial Kingdom Temple, we have to admit that that's something in our future. It's hard to apply something that's in the future. But we can apply the principle that God is there. But we don't have to wait to get to the Millennial to have God's presence in our life. God wants to be with us but we also have to be aware that there are some things that will hurt, grieve God's spirit. And that's our conduct as the Bible describes it here in the book of Ephesians chapter number four. I don't know about you, but I hope that you have that desire. I want God's presence within my own life. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.